This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. I hope that you're ready to study God's Word wherever you are, wherever you're sitting. And so if you'll open to John chapter 2, the book of John chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I would encourage you to go to the description there uh, uh, on our Facebook live feed. And there are uh, some notes there if you would like to follow along as you normally do here on Sunday morning. And, and I'm really glad that you, you've tuned in. Uh, to study the Word with us this morning, even though we're in all of our respective places um, today. And so we're going to continue in this uh, series that we're doing in the book of John. Uh, And a couple of weeks ago when I set this up, if you're new to to the sermon series today, is about a hundred different times in the book of John, John uses some form of the word believe. Maybe believe or believed in the past tense or believer. And he tells us at the very end of his passage, of his book, that he wrote this book so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is who he said that he is. And so um, today we're going to go a little bit different track than we normally do. So normally here at Mill City Church, what we do is we open up one paragraph of Scripture or maybe one chapter of Scripture, and we make our way through that chapter or that paragraph. Today, we're going to be in six different places in the book of John because what I want you to see today is I want you to see in a, in a broader sense what Jesus taught us through his miracles. And so today we're going to look at six different miracles of Jesus in the book of John. We're not going to study every one of them exhaustively. We're going to look at every single one of them and, and, and see what it is that Jesus teaches us that's more countercultural about miracles. Now, now, we use the word miracle in a lot of different ways, right? So when we think about miracle, we may think, man, the 2004 Boston Red Sox, that was the miracle season, right? That was the season that changed everything. It was, it was one of those types of seasons that is really indescribable. It was very unexpected, and it might be a while before another team does exactly what they did in the playoffs that year. Um, you might even look and say, man, it was a miracle that I passed biochem last semester. And from your standpoint, it really, really was a miracle. But what oftentimes happens is we use words in our English vernacular or our human vernacular, and we almost neuter those words of their meaning. Because the reality is, if so many things on any given day are truly miraculous, would we even know a real miracle if we saw one? And what I want to encourage us to do as we look at the text today is we want to see some really astounding works of Jesus Christ in the book of John. And these are things that we don't see every day. And these are things that, that are even far greater than what we may think are the most miraculous things we've ever seen on earth. It might even be helpful for us to have a good definition of what a miracle is, biblically speaking. And I, I think that theologian Wayne Grudem gives us a good definition of a miracle. He, he calls miracles a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness about himself. For the sake of our message today, I'm going to read that again just so 
we can understand it and kind of take it in a little more clearly. Grudem says that a miracle is a less common kind of God's activity, meaning that it's not something that we see every day. It's not even something that we see God doing all the time throughout the scriptures. A less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder. And we're going to see that in the text today, that when Jesus does some of these miracles, the people's response is awe. And then also to bear witness about himself. And that's the ultimate thing that I want you to see today in the text. Now, when we look throughout the book of John, as well as in the other gospels as well, and you also look at some of the works of God in the Old Testament, you'll see different words for miracles. Sometimes the word miracle might be used, but we see other words more often, words like sign or wonder or work. We might even see mighty work. And this is where we see, go all the way to the end of the book of John, In John 21, verse 25, the last verse in this gospel, this is what John says. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. But these have been written. And so we're going to look at six today. And as we look at these six, what I'm going to do is I want to pull out from each one of these miracles of Jesus... A countercultural truth, Jesus teaches us about miracles. And they're countercultural because for us as human beings, we really focus in on the miracle itself. But what we're going to see in every one of these instances is something that Jesus says or something that Jesus does that really should deflect our attention from just focusing on the miracle and seeing something bigger that Jesus wants us to understand in the process. And so for the first one, let's go to John chapter 2. We're going to look at a lot of text today, but I assure you that we will be very responsible with time. All right, so John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. There was a wedding in a place called Cana. And on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed for a few days. This might be very surprising for us this morning, but uh, before I get into the body of our text, it might be cool for us to note that in verse 11, John says, This was the first of his signs. This was the first of Jesus' miracles. 
And it might be encouraging for us today that Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. Jesus kept the party going, right? So Jesus was not just simply some stoic, boring religious leader. He was very much a part of everyday life there uh, in Galilee. But we learn a countercultural truth here. Jesus takes regular water. So you put it in our context today, regular water that we would go and draw from a well or we would go and draw from our faucets or from our refrigerator. He takes that everyday normal water and just simply turns it into wine, not only wine, but the best wine of the feast. And he does it without any sort of hocus pocus and he does it without any other sort of external, uh, without any other external tool. But what I want you to zone in here on is verse 3. Verse 3 says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. You guys ever been in the living room or at a dinner table with your mother? And you don't really know exactly everything that she's saying, but you kind of have a clue just because of the, the body language or just because of... Uh, the, the way she says it, well, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Mary, Jesus' mother, wants Jesus to do something that Jesus is not really ready to do. And the reason is because Jesus says that his hour has not yet come. And so he looks at her and says, woman... We could probably stop there. I don't know what tradition was like for you in New England or wherever else you're from, but for me and growing up in the South, if I were to look at my mom or if I were to look at my grandmother and call her woman, I probably would have been standing in the corner somewhere for a brief time out. In this culture, using the term woman was not exactly a disrespectful tone that Jesus was taking with his mother. But what Jesus shows us here is that even Jesus' mother still needed to recognize him as Savior. He doesn't use the most affectionate term for her here. He uses the the more generic term of woman in his relationship with his mother. But I don't want to get in the weeds on that too much. Ultimately, what Jesus is doing is he's deflecting attention away from wine, away from water, away from some miracle that he could do right here to point to something greater, and that something greater was his death. Because his death was the hour for which he really came. That's his whole purpose for coming to earth was something so much bigger than our momentary need. And so here's the first countercultural truth that I want you to see that Jesus teaches us about miracles is that Jesus is not subject to our demands. Jesus is not subject to your demand of him or my demand of him. Because surely on any given day, at any given moment, there's something we want Jesus to do for us. And it captivates our attention. It consumes our mind. It could even consume our affections. And we could even get to the very uncomfortable place where we as human beings are coming before the creator of the universe and demanding upon him what we want, what we want to see happen. And this is ultimately kind of what Mary does here. You know they don't have any wine over there. And you're the Messiah. You need to go over there and Messiah and take care of this. And Jesus 
says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus is not subject to your demands, my demands. He's not subject to our demands this morning. We're going to see a second countercultural truth that Jesus teaches about miracles. Go over to John chapter 4. All right, so Jesus is going to get outside of inanimate objects here, and he's going to get to real live human beings and performing a healing on a sick boy. And in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 46, here's what the text reads. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The disciples believed after the water turned into wine. This man believed and all of his household after this little boy gets better. But I want to zero in here. Yes, we want to see that Jesus caused a boy who was near death, that Jesus caused him to live again without actually even being in his presence. That should awe us and amaze us at the power of Jesus Christ. That in and of itself. I don't want you to miss that. I want you to see that miracle, and I want you to be awed by it. But I also don't want you to miss Jesus' words here. Because in verse 48, when Jesus responds to the man, he says to him, unless you see signs and wonders... You will not believe. And what's noteworthy for us to recognize is that pronoun you there is in the plural tense. Jesus was not callously rebuking this man because he wanted his son to live again. I mean, what parent would not want that to happen, especially if they're in front of a man whom they know had turned water into wine and had very much supernatural abilities? Jesus is not rebuking the man himself He's marveling over the crowds. He's marveling over the crowds in Galilee who are seeing these signs and they're so captivated by the signs that they're almost attaching the signs with belief. And unless Jesus just performs his magic show, then they're not going to believe. And so Jesus marvels at the crowd in response to the man. Unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. So here's a second countercultural truth that we need to learn today from Jesus' miracles. And that's this, that Jesus challenges those demanding signs for belief. Jesus challenges those of us demanding signs for belief. Like it's a quid pro quo, right? So Jesus, I'll believe in you. I'll follow you. And I'll submit to you. I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything as long as you do this, you heal my son. You make my grandmother 
well. You give me a passing grade in that class. You cause her to say yes to my date offer. You do all of those things, or you do one of those things, then I will believe. I think if any of us are honest this morning, we've probably been there at some point in our life. Maybe we didn't articulate it that way specifically, but if we're truly honest with ourselves and with God this morning, we, we would confess that from our hearts, we have oftentimes told God, if you will give me this, then I'll believe. And Jesus challenges the Galileans that, that don't demand signs for belief. Don't exchange that. In actuality, this is a common recurrence for Jesus in the Gospels. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 4, in, in a very intense exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, he tells the Pharisees, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Paul told the Corinthians that the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. Here's what I want you to know today. I want you to know that Jesus cares about human beings. He, he, he does heal this young man and he, he does benevolently and compassionately respond to this official's request. So I want you to know that Jesus cares about you. He cares about your circumstances. He cares about your family members and those who may be sick or ill. But Jesus never throughout the scriptures tells us that he will trade signs and wonders for your belief. He wants you to believe who he is because of what's been written. He challenges those of us who would demand signs for belief. All right, next Here's a third countercultural truth that Jesus is going to teach us from the miracles in the book of John. I'm going to go ahead and tell you what it is, and then we're going to look at John chapter 5. Jesus also tells the ultimate purpose for his miracles. He tells the ultimate purpose for his miracles. Now, there, there could be some of us who are listening to this today, and you could even have a picture of Jesus or an expectation of Jesus that Jesus is just simply a miracle worker. That that was the, the, the purpose of his life and, and the purpose of his miracles was simply to tell you that no matter what's going on on planet earth, that he will swoop in and heal that sick person or he will just turn whatever you want into whatever want you want and, and that that's the purpose of his miracles, that, that Jesus does these things to tell you that this is what you should expect on any given day throughout the course of your life. And it would be very tempting for us, humanly speaking, to read these words on the text and come to that conclusion. But in John chapter 5, he's going to start showing us something a little bit different about the purpose of his miracles. So I'm going to read this uh, this extended paragraph, and then we're going to get to the very end, and Jesus is going to tell us the ultimate purpose for his miracles, and it's not the purpose that we as humans normally would like to believe. So after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. 
In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, no, I don't want to. No, of course. He said, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. He's like, I, sure, but I don't know how this would happen, right? And Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. Let me just stop you right there for a moment. You, you've been lame for a long, long time. And you've gotten to the point where you just recognize that this is just your lot in life. And you know that after sitting somewhere for a long time, that, that it takes work to get up. It, it takes other people to actually help you get up. So don't you know that these words had to have been astounding to this man when Jesus says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, verse 9 says. And he took up his bed and walked. Stop there for a moment and be astounded by that. Be astounded by the fact that Jesus looked at this lame man and just said, get up. And immediately he got up and walked. We need to see that and let that sink in so that we see the greatness of who Jesus is. The text goes on to say, now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed because he had done work on the Sabbath. But, but he answered them, the man who healed me, right? The, the, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place and afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Most commentators and theologians believe that Jesus is saying this because the man was actually lame because of something he had done. He had actually done something that caused him hurt. And, and, and because of his sin, because of his sinful choice, it caused him uh, that, that infirmity. Then the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews, was, the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Here it is, verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. It takes us all those 16 verses to go down and get to verse 17. But in verse 17, what Jesus does for us, if we will listen and if we will see it, Jesus is telling us the ultimate purpose for his miracles. And it's simply this, that Jesus is ultimately performing these miracles to demonstrate who he is and from where he came. He is linking himself to God the Father. Through every act of, uh, through every supernatural act, through every miraculous deed, Jesus is demonstrating that his identity is otherworldly. And he is making a very bold statement here in a Jewish context. In a Jewish context where they were, had such a reverence for the name of God, the idea of calling God Father was beyond them. And Jesus uses the radical language of, My Father has been working until now, and I 
am working alongside of him. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, everything that you're seeing, this is the Father working through me. And it's because I came from him. I am the Messiah in whom you should believe and place your trust. Now we can link this to John 20, verse 30, which we looked at at the very beginning of the series and I alluded to at the beginning of this message. The very purpose for which John wrote the gospel of John. He said, now Jesus did many other signs or miracles, right? In the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what is John doing? John is not inventing something. John's not inventing a truth. What John is doing is he's stating as his thesis what Jesus himself said was the very purpose for which he came. And he's linking his purpose statement and his thesis statement of his gospel to what Jesus said was his ultimate origin. My father is working until now, and I am working. Friend, the purpose of the miracles and the gospels is not so that you would read them and simply expect that Jesus would do this in your life on any given day at any given moment throughout your life. These had been written so that you would see them and you would hear them and you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God and that you would believe him and have life in his name. Next, not only does he tell us the ultimate purpose for his miracles, Jesus also shows the ultimate purpose for his coming. If you go over one more chapter in John chapter 6, we're going, to go back to, we're going to go back to inanimate objects here. In verse 6, Jesus is going to take bread, he's going to take loaves and fish, and he's going to feed a multitude. Verse 1, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. The sick. I want you to get a picture here. The people are seeing all these things, and crowds are rising. They're being enamored. And, and, and I don't want to be irreverent, but it, it's almost like they wanted to see the circus sideshow. They, they wanted to see this freak of nature do his thing. That's what they're wanting. And they're wanting to get all of their needs met. And so this crowd is gathering. And verse 3 says that Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Basically, Jesus, we could work for the rest of this year and we wouldn't get enough money to feed all these people. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. And there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, and about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill... He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Here's what I love. When Jesus, when Jesus performs his miracles, 
he doesn't perform his miracles at the bare minimum, right? He doesn't perform it just enough to get by. Like he, he feeds the people like going to a buffet line because it says he fed them until they had their fill and then they gathered up the leftover fragments and so now people are taking home doggy bags, right? And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten them. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now you're thinking, man, Jesus performed this miracle of feeding the multitudes and there's this huge spiritual awakening and the people are believing in him and are rushing towards him in active faith and spiritual belief. But actually, if you read on in the book of John, John chapter 6, just finish this chapter, you're going to find that a large host of these people abandoned him and walked away when they heard the hard teachings of his gospel. And so here's what we can infer from the text, is that what these people were believing is they were believing that this was the guy that they could believe in for, their, for Rome. What they were believing is that this is the guy they wanted to run for president in 2020. Because this was the guy that could bring the real hope and change that they had been longing for. This was a guy who could really fill their coffers and fill their bellies all at the same time. This was all about externals. This was all about what Jesus could give to them. It wasn't about who Jesus was or the gospel message he proclaimed. And you see this on full display in verse 15 because Jesus' response here, Now I want you to think about this. Jesus was human being of human being here just as he was fully God. He could have been very tempted at this point to amass power for himself and say, I could be king of Rome if I wanted to now because these people are so enamored by me. But he knew that that wasn't his purpose for coming to earth. Instead, in verse 15, it says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And every time we see him withdrawing into the mountains by himself, we know that he was going to pray. And the reason is because Jesus knew his ultimate purpose for coming to planet Earth. And it wasn't to be a miracle worker. It wasn't simply to disperse physical needs as people had them, his ultimate purpose for coming to earth was to be a spiritual Messiah, the spiritual savior of the world, to ransom a people for himself to bring back to God. And it wasn't to get in the middle of all the demands that people might want on any given day. I love what Matt Carter says in response to this. He says, if Jesus responded to what men desired from him, he would have filled bellies, healed diseases, and overthrown Rome, and then all of humanity would have died and gone to hell. Jesus knew his purpose for coming to earth. His purpose is far greater than any purpose that perhaps you think of Jesus. And maybe you're thinking today, like, I'm just waiting on Jesus to fill X, Y, or Z. And only you can fill in the blanks of what that means. Only you know what it is you're demanding of Jesus today. But if you don't learn anything else from the feeding of the 5,000, Know the ultimate purpose for Jesus' miracles and know the ultimate purpose for which he came. He didn't come to be your personal genie or your personal miracle worker to simply do whatever it is that you want him to do. He came to be your spiritual savior. And we're going to see a little bit more on this in just a moment, but I'm just going to press pause there as we go to number five. 
I want you to see a fifth, a fifth countercultural truth about miracles. And for that, we're just going to keep reading in John 6 and verse 16. It says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. There's great adversity here in these waters for these disciples. And these disciples are very experienced fishermen. These fishermen would have known the seas better than you or I would have known the seas. And this storm was so tumultuous that it even took them by surprise. But there is something in the text that we don't see here in John 6 that we do see in Matthew 14 when Matthew writes about this account that it's it's extraordinary, and I would even say radical to our listening ears today. And here it is. Matthew 14, 22 actually says that Jesus made them get into the boat and Jesus sent them into the sea. Now, we said in week one of this series that Jesus himself is the creator of the universe. And that all things big and all things small, Jesus is Lord over and has created all, even the weather. So don't miss the fact that Jesus intentionally and purposely sent the disciples into the storm. And that is a countercultural truth that we learn even here in this miracle where Jesus walks out on the water in the midst of this storm and he's walking on water as if it were a bridge or a sandbar. But don't miss the bigger truth that we learn here. And here it is. Jesus sometimes sends us into adversity to give a clearer picture of himself. Is that not what happens here? Jesus intentionally sends the disciples into this storm, into this adversity, and then he walks out on the sea, and so he's showing them something of himself that they've never seen before. So they're like, okay, I see the water turning into wine. I see that you touch people and they get better But what kind of man is this that he even commands the winds and the waves and they obey him and he walks on the ocean as if it were dry land and they were terrified when they saw him because they actually thought it was a ghost. But verse 20 says, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Friend, I wanna ask you today, how how in the world Will you or I ever be able to hear the words of Jesus, do not be afraid, if we're not in circumstances where we're afraid? There are so many times where we just expect peace and safety and just our normal rhythms. I think that's probably one of the greatest struggles of this week, isn't it? That we're just... We're being thrown from our rhythms. Like, I, I think that most of us know that this virus that's going around, I think most of us know that, uh, that for most people that this is not going to infect us probably and that 
And even if it does, that will probably be better in a week or two. For most of us, that's truth. And, and, but at the same time, we're frightened just because of the unknown of it. And we're being disrupted from our rhythms. And if you're a student or young adult, you're like, I've never seen anything like this in my life. Like, what's going on? And there's this adversity that's just kind of come out of nowhere. Others of you are seriously going through adversity, whether it's cancer or the death of a loved one or perhaps unemployment or financial duress. And you're just wondering what is going on. And if you don't learn anything else about Jesus walking on water and looking at his disciples and saying, it is I do not be afraid, know this this morning, is that sometimes Jesus very intentionally sends his children into great adversity in order to get a clearer picture of who he is. And we see this in that they were glad to take him into the boat, but we also read in other accounts and other gospels that they believed and marveled over him in fresh ways because of what they experienced. And so know that today, that in your adversity, as hard as it is and as painful as it is, there's a purpose beyond the hurt. See Jesus for who he is and listen for him through the text to say, it is I, do not be afraid. All right, we're going to see one last miracle here in the Gospel of John for the purposes of our message today, and it's in John chapter 9. It's in John chapter 9. This is actually one of my personal favorite miracles of Jesus that we read uh, in the Gospel of John. And beginning in verse 1, we're going to see Jesus heal a young man who was born blind. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Isn't that a question that you and I would normally ask? Like when something really what we perceive as being really bad happens in our lives or in a loved one's life, whether it's a birth defect or it's a handicap or, or perhaps there's just something going on in your life that's just really uncomfortable and really painful. Don't, don't we immediately say, God, what did I do to deserve this? As if God is transactional in that way. And the reality is it's a very legalistic question. It's a legalist question because we presume that there is this equation where this plus this equals that. And so if something really bad is happening to me, it's got to be because I deserved it. And so Jesus is going to surprise us even with his answer here. He says, it wasn't that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground, he made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Shalom, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Jesus says, that it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is a total parenthetical note, if you'll give me that, uh, that rope uh, of, of convenience this morning. Every time we see someone who is handicapped, 
Every time we see some, someone perhaps with a learning disability or some, whether that handicap is a mental handicap or a physical handicap, one of the first things that we should think based on this passage is, man, look at how the works of God might be displayed in him. And the reason is because that's what Jesus says. There's a greater purpose than simply the ailment. There's a greater purpose than simply the infirmity. But don't miss also that Jesus made some mud pies in the sand and he put them on the guy's eyes and he saw. And Jesus miraculously causes this man to see. But don't miss also the greater point in this passage because Jesus says that we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. And he said, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. There's another passage where Jesus actually says, I am the light of the world. And in that passage, what Jesus makes very clear is that when he talks about light versus darkness and talking about himself as being the light of the world, he is ultimately telling us that he is spiritual truth, that he is the ultimate truth. He is the ultimate understanding and light in this world of confusion and darkness. And so he immediately shows us here that there's something bigger than just this man's sight. So then what happens is that there are three different interrogations that are going to happen. And so for the sake of our time, I'm just going to tell you what those are, and you can go back and read the whole text later. But the Pharisees see this, and they immediately bring in the young man born blind. This man clearly violated the Sabbath, and they start drilling the guy about what happened and what exactly Jesus did. Because again, they're so concerned that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. They don't really care about the law. They just want to trip Jesus up and, and castigate him as a fraud. And then a second interrogation happens where he br they bring the boy's parents in. And they basically want to know, was he really blind from birth? I mean, was it basically, like, basically just a stigmatism or something? Maybe he had sight problems, but he really could see, but... But they attest, no, he actually was born blind. And they're actually kind of sarcastic with them. Look, you, he's a man. You can go ask him yourself and he'll tell you. And so they bring the guy in again and they interrogate him a third time. And they go even deeper this time. We know this man was a sinner. So now they're trying to impugn Jesus' character because the other interrogations didn't work. To which the blind man says, look, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I do know, that though I once was blind, now I see. And that's why John Newton would write the famous hymn that we sing so belovedly often, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound which saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And you get to verse 35, and Jesus starts explaining for us the purpose of this miracle. He says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out because the Pharisees send the guy out and even humiliate him in doing so. He goes and finds the guy and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world. That those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? 
And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Here's the sixth countercultural truth about miracles that Jesus shows us here. Jesus uses physical healing to point us towards spiritual healing. Yes, he heals this man's infirmity, but after healing him, he actually uses the infirmity and the healing as a metaphor for something greater. And that metaphor is spiritual sight. And what Jesus is doing here with these Pharisees is these guys were the experts in the law. They were the spiritual authorities. They were the ones who would tell everyone, we see and we understand spiritual reality. But Jesus says, you're actually blind. You think you know, but you really don't. And this man whom you really humiliated and made him look like a fool and ignorant because you're so educated and so spiritually astute, you're actually the fool. See, the reality, friends, is Jesus does care about our physical ailments. Jesus does care about whatever is going on in our lives. But Jesus' greatest concern for you or for me is the spiritual condition of our hearts. And whether or not we truly believe and truly see him as the greatness and the majesty for who he is. So I wonder if you're there today. That there are so many physical things that you're looking for. There are so many demands that you're making of Jesus. There are so many fixes that you want in your life. But you're driving past the one thing that Jesus wants to make sure you get no matter what. And it's that you believe and see him as the one true Messiah. Who came ultimately to die for the world. Resurrect on the third day so that anyone in the world would turn to him through faith and repentance from their sin. So that no matter what happens to us on planet earth, no matter what happens to us physically, no matter how we're disrupted in our everyday lives, that there would be a peace and a safety and a security in our lives, not only for this life, but also in the life to come and for all eternity. And those are six countercultural truths that Jesus wants us to know, even in the midst of him performing miracles. So I hope today that you've been encouraged by your time with us. I hope you've been challenged in the word as it's challenged me. And as always, I would encourage you that if you have questions or concerns about your spiritual condition and you want to talk to someone, here's what I want you to know. That although gatherings, large gatherings have been closed off in our area for at least the next few weeks. I want you to know that our phone numbers and our email addresses and our lives haven't been closed off. And so please reach out if you would like to talk to someone in response to what you heard today. I'm going to pray for you. And then if you would like to stay on and, and hear one more song and some, a few announcements, uh, we would encourage you to do that. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for teaching us and instructing us through your word. Thank you that even in the midst of your marvelous works and your supernatural miracles, Jesus, that you showed us things and taught us things that would be so easy for our human eyes and ears to miss. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would apply these words to our hearts 
in such a way that you would cause belief to rise up in us and that we may be more wholeheartedly and fervently devoted to the greatness and beauty of who you are today than we were yesterday and tomorrow more than we are today. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen.